Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Hello, Sharon, and hello to our listeners, and welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here. Of course, I'm not with you right now. No, no, you're off having a girl's trip. I am. I got my got my good friends down here, Tracy Castleman from New Jersey, and Dana Peterson, my ride or die from Charlotte, and of course, Judge Woods down here. So we were listening to oral arguments for the Court of Appeals this morning oh, for fun. <laughs> wonderful. It sounds like a weekend that I would love to have with the boys. <laughs> sure yeah. y'all wouldn't yeah. be doing that but it was pretty fun we learned a lot <laughs> well good and on that note let's kind of change it up a little bit here because that sounds boring to me but i'm just saying uh <laughs> who said we weren't drinking mimosas oh there we you go i knew the truth it. would eventually come out you know the wine was flowing while we're listening to oral arguments you know that that sounds more interesting to me there you go. Well, we, that's our, our brand of fun. Oh, good. Good. Well, you know, we have a great show lined up today, and I know you're excited about it. And, and the more I've done a little bit of research on, uh, on our guest, I've gotten even more excited about having him on today. So today we have Scott Becker. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you, Jay, and thank you, Sharon. It looks like you guys have a lot more fun than I do, so I'm looking forward to joining you today on today's <laughs> podcast and show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Scott, I'm going to do a little bit about your background, and I'm going to let you take over because uh, the more research I did on you, the more impressed I got, and you know, I could probably take the whole show and, and read about your background, but uh, you're, you're a partner in the healthcare department at McGuire Woods. And you're also the founder and publisher of Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare, um, which in itself is is just an amazing feat because when I was reading, you guys have almost three and a half million subscribers, um, which which is absolutely amazing. You also have something in, in common with uh, with Sharon. You're a Harvard Law graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we try not to tell anybody, but yes, we did pass from Harvard Law School, but I, you know, a, a lot earlier than uh, Sharon did, but yes, a long time ago. Oh, no, he's messing with you because I went, to, went to Yale. Yale. Was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're also a CPA as well by background, so that's always interesting to me. So as we kind of kick this off, Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and how in the world did you get into Becker's Healthcare and kind of evolve from where you were to where you are now? Sure. No, and thank you so much for the question. Um, yeah, so I started Becker's Healthcare literally 30 years ago when I was in my 20s, and really apropos of something totally different than it ended up being. So, so Becker's Healthcare ended up being a significant sort of a media company. Really, our audiences, hospitals and health system leaders, uh, orthopedic and spine surgeons, surgery centers, hospitals, health IT, digital health. And within that, of course, anesthesia plays a big part in everything. Right. So we've ended up with also, you know, some falling amongst CRNAs, uh, the ANA, AANA, and, and others. It, but, but really, we ended up um, building the media company, uh, which now has, you know, five, six large conferences a year. President Bush, uh, Ariana Huffington just spoke at our last event, Peyton Manning, Magic Johnson before that. And, and just really a great deal of fun. We've had Bill and Hillary Clinton and a whole number of sort of, you know, really interesting speakers um, ac across the board, meetings, 
digital. We have a podcast. And, and it's been a, a waiver of love and has put us in the middle of sort of the, the core of the healthcare industry. I, I by background, as you mentioned, for better or for worse, Harvard Law graduate, started the media company 30 years ago, really not intending to build a serious media company. When I first started it, I was trying to build a brand as a young lawyer, and that was sort of the first part of the journey. Then at some point, it became truly a media company versus a marketing effort. Now we've got 100-plus employees, 30 full-time writers, lots of people that plan events full-time, a key account management team, a sales team, an event team, and so forth and so on. And it's really been you know, a great pleasure. So I had a chance today, to, for example, to visit with the CEO of one of the University of Mass. University of Massachusetts Health Systems. Uh, earlier today, the chief strategy officer of the largest nonprofit behavioral health system in the world, in the country. And, and I get to visit with really interesting people, and it's just been a great pleasure to be in the middle of it. But that's really was the start of it. I've had a chance to visit with the president of the AANA, at least the, the immediate past president, uh, Dina Valachi, and that's been fascinating as well. So we get a chance to visit with people who, who just really across the spectrum, and a great pleasure. But, and thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it is kind of funny how we get into business and we think we're going to go one way and then life and business kind of lead us in this other path. And, you know, you look back and you go, wow, you know, this has kind of been a curvy path, but what a great ride. It sounds like the same for you. No, 100%. It's been, it's been, I've ended up straddling two careers forever, that of being a lawyer to our firm, where I chaired our national healthcare practice. I really say when I talk about this in depth, built my legal practice in my 30s, built the media company with a great team. I mean, the, the core that runs through all these things is sort of two things, all in healthcare and all built with great teams. And, and it really built the media company in my 40s. And I've had just tremendous fun with that, with both, really, with both, and, and great teams and really focused in the healthcare, healthcare arena. Well, you know, I think today, you know, the, our topic of conversation, which we could have went, you know, in a, in a multitude of different uh, directions with you, but we're, we're really going to be talking about the future of healthcare and kind of get your take on that. But, but more specifically, because the majority of our listeners are CRNAs, you know, the CRNAs' role in the future of healthcare, and all that's going to kind of lead into probably a, a lot of different directions. But, but that's kind of where we want to want to take this today and Sharon I know you had you know a couple questions that you wanted to start off with so I'll let you start because you know as you said Scott and I are probably gonna, you're probably going to take a fire hose to us as, uh, as soon as I get I started with him so I will so again this episode is going to be the last episode that airs for this year so we are forward facing looking towards 2023 and you have your finger in a lot of different pies, as we have just heard about. So why don't you give us an overview with all of the things that are going on in healthcare, and you're looking into your crystal ball right now. What do you think 2023 is going to bring overall for the healthcare system? And we'll, we'll hone into how you see CRNAs just fitting into that uh, puzzle after you you take your first swing at this. Sure. Well, I'll start more Nero. I'll start Nero because it's it's relevant to your audience. I mean, there's there's and then I'll go a little bit deeper and broader. There, there's first and foremost, at least for Nero, is there's a huge shortage of anesthesia providers throughout the country, and that's causing huge challenges for health systems, for surgery centers, for anybody that needs anesthesia. Huge shortages, and it's fascinating because you've seen a worldwide sort of change in perspective amongst medical doctor anesthesiologists versus CRNAs and that how that that world that's inhabited. If we went back 10 years ago, this was a tremendously territorial relationship. You know, medical doctor anesthesia anesthesiologists were doing everything they can in every market to keep CRNAs out. They viewed them as a source of competition, something getting in the way of them making a living, so forth and so on. At this point, you know, it's almost as though medical doctor anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist, MD anesthesia, has thrown up the white flag, and not the white flag in terms of like, oh my God, we're not we're not prepared to keep on working, we're not prepared to be fighting, but sort of understand the shortage of anesthesia providers is so significant, so challenging that that no one could do this without the greater help of CRNAs and others. So you sort of, I start sort of Nero, moving from this huge territorial fight that was going on for 10, 20 years. Uh, anesthesiologists trying to get the federal government to change the rule. They changed it to where states could opt into CRNA only with supervision of a doctor and so forth and so on, to having these fights across state lines, to now many, many states allowing CRNAs to practice alone. 
and quite frankly, medical doctor anesthesiologists done with this fight. I mean, their fights are much broader today that the medical doctor anesthesia, the anesthesia community is more aligned in fighting things like the No Surprises Act, medical billing issues, and, and getting just really wowed by payers than fighting each other. And, it, and it's really fascinating. It's sort of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And what's happened with CRNAs and medical doctor anesthesia is this huge movement towards where they're really aligned against the large payers and towards Medicare, trying to get paid better by CMS. But, but really so much challenge from the large players. The No Surprises Act, which on its face sounds really nice, but was really, really a pro-payer law is really borne out that way. And it's caused tremendous challenges in the anesthesia provision, anesthesia profession, CRNA and medical doctors, uh, and, and just a real challenge. So I sort of start there. Then I look at going more broadly, hospitals and health systems facing probably the most crises financial times we've seen in my career, in my lifetime, and, and probably Sharon and Jay's as well. You know, we just saw today Providence Health System, one of the largest not-for-profit systems, reported a billion two loss. And you see this across the ecosystem. I mean, health systems that used to rely on different types of procedures, different types of surgery, different types of things to make their numbers work. They've got sort of flat reimbursement in a situation where inflation, labor costs, supply costs have gone through the roof. So you're seeing sort of mega losses at the mega systems. Uh, you're also seeing sort of tied to that. Another announcement today of a small health system merging into a large system. Uh, and again, we're, we're talking uh, about a month before this episode's released, but either way, it gives you a sense of what's going on. But, but the same trends will carry through this year into next year. Another health system in Mississippi sort of, again, throwing up the flag, saying we've got to merge with somebody. So sending out an RFP to find buyers, to find suitors, and so forth. The last two to four years during the pandemic, health systems received a tremendous amount of financial support from the federal government and state governments that let them float through and make it through the last few years, a very daunting period. I don't want to understate how daunting it was emotionally, psychologically, physically-wise, and everything, but financially, health systems recovered because they got tremendous help from the federal government state governments. Now, with that aid gone, health systems are very exposed to, to real challenging market factors. They've got reimbursement, is flat, costs going through the roof, and these are real challenging things. And, and, and it's not like some people could say, in the old days, people might have said, well, the health systems don't deserve that much empathy, this, that, the other. The reality is, though, if the pandemic proved anything, for all the different challenges out there, we do need the large health systems. I mean, even now, we're in the fall winter 2022, we've got, again, bed shortages throughout the country. There's not enough hospital beds for the amount of people that are suffering from viruses in certain places. Certain places in California, they're putting up tents again. In Chicago, there's a horrible bus accident with local kids in it. They didn't have hospital beds for the kids. I mean, just to, to bring the kids back to the Chicago area because we're out of hospital beds. And so, so many places in this, in this drive towards efficiency, we don't have the hospital beds that we need in a lot of places. So whatever the economic model is, it's a challenging spot for large hospital and health systems. And we probably still need the hospital and health systems. So that's a challenging spot. So we've talked about CRNAs and anesthesia. We've talked about large health systems. Then I guess the third thing we'll talk about is there are lots of new competitors try to dig, dig deeper into the healthcare ecosystem. And, and I'll, I'll look at those in two ways. There's four of the largest companies in the U.S. out of the top 20 are payers of some sort. There's United Healthcare and CVS, who are by any measure fifth and sixth in the country in terms of total revenues, just after sort of Apple, Walmart, Amazon, Apple, I think Exxon, Chevron, ExxonMobil this last, this last quarter because oil prices were so high. Yeah. But CVS United are generally fifth or sixth in terms of total revenues in the U.S. And then you've got still, after that, you've got CVS and United, then you've got Cigna, and you've got Anthem, the former Anthem, which is now Elevance, but another. So four of the largest 20 companies in the country are payers. Many of those payers, CVS and Walgreens, which is partnering with, with Cigna on something, are working hard to double down, triple down, quadruple down on their primary care presence. And you've seen this for years but they seem to be getting more serious about it. So if you looked at this over the last several years, everybody in most of our communities has a CVS. It depends which area you're in, whether you're CVS or Walgreens. But all of them have built up these health hubs. And what they found was those, all those health hubs were largely unstaffed. So you, so you go into them, and like at least in my community, you kept on going to urgent care to the major health systems because they had great urgent cares in lots of locations, and they were staffed. The, the, the CVSs weren't staffed. There's just not enough doctors out there. But you do see the situation where CVS, Walgreens have each put huge money into trying to buy into primary care networks 
to try and build out some of those. And that is fine and okay, but there's just not enough doctors right now in our society. So you've got an aging, growing population, 330 million people, and you've got a situation where there's just not enough doctors, nurses, providers, techs, everything to serve them. And that's sort of when I look at sort of that issue, the supply-demand imbalance of our growing aging population versus the supply of help, that is just a real challenging issue that will take some serious thinking to address and try and figure out. You know, people think there's easy answers to it. Oh, we move to just prevention. We do this. We do that. But none of those have proven to be easy answers. In countries where they moved to straight prevention, what they found was during the pandemic, they were just overridden with patients and not enough staff to take care of them. So the idea of just we're going to do everything through prevention, it's a wonderful idea. It's a lofty goal, but I don't think it's reality for a lot of us. But but we'll see. But so, so those are three big, big trends. And I'll turn it back to you, too. Yeah, so I mean, Scott, you just you just said a mouthful there. I mean, you, you know, I think if we could solve even a, a quarter of those problems, you know, you and I would probably be richer than Bezos. But um, but unfortunately, there there are tougher, harder issues there. So so let's just kind of talk about the shortage for just a minute, because you know, like I said, the majority of our listeners are CRNAs, and there's obviously a shortage of anesthesia providers out there. And I, I do a lot of talking for you know for CRNA schools and so forth. And I tell these these students, I can't call them kids, but but they're students, you know, that what a great time to be a CRNA. I mean, if you look at, you know, just all the dynamics taking place right now, I mean, you know, the average age of an anesthesiologist is in their 50s. The average age of a CRNA is in the low 50s. Um, you know, obviously the graying of America, you know, as we get older, we tend to need more maintenance. We need a hip. We need, you know, all these things, uh, which leaves more surgeries and, and more anesthetics out there. So I think it's a great time to, to be a CRNA. Now, along with that, um, you know, and it's, it's probably something we don't want to go down that road with you today, but th- there is still some animosity between the MDs and the CRNAs, and then we a- add AAs in the equation. But as I look out and, and just look at the, the pure numbers and just extrapolate that back, I would say that I don't know that there's been a better time to be a CRNA ever. What are your thoughts around that? No, I think that's I think that's really right. I mean, I would say that that's really right with one caveat. One is that, yes, CRNAs starting salaries, the amounts are being recruited for the dollars that are being thrown at them are higher than ever yeah. by particularly by health systems that have no choice, but because they need bodies to be able to do surgery. They just can't do it without the CRNAs and anesthesiologists. And you've got that in sort of some surgical groups, surgery centers as well. The only sort of... um. Uh, COVID, I would say, is that, but yes, there's just a huge need. And so that leads to supply, demand, and salaries getting better. The only challenge I would say is that the money coming in for CRNA and anesthesia services from the big payers is getting slammed some. And so you've got a bit of this imbalance where anesthesia groups, whether CRNA-driven groups, doctor-driven groups, are asking for bigger and bigger subsidies mm-hmm. from hospitals and health systems. Right. And they're often getting them right now. Yeah. Yeah. But but at some point, there's a real challenge because they need those subsidies because payers aren't paying fairly enough for those services. Right. So you've got this real challenge. And, and the negotiating leverage of the CRNA and the MD anesthesia community has been, has been cut in half, cut off at the knees by the No Surprises Act. So, so right. you look at something and you say, yes, they're commanding great salaries. The unfortunate thing is they're often through subsidies. And when they're through subsidies, the person paying that subsidy, meaning the system paying that subsidy, is always looking for ways to figure out how to get around it. Right. So I I would say you've got a a real, absolutely, you're you're seeing numbers in Chicago, for example, starting CRNAs. I've heard numbers are thrown around like 250, 280, 300,000, numbers that were unthought of or unheard of for CRNAs a few years ago, just not even even in the realm. It used to be, you know, you made 150,000 bucks, maybe 200,000 hours. And you had a great career, you had a much better balance of life, right. and you had a great living. Now you're seeing numbers that are, you know, better than what you make coming out of the elite law schools and stuff like that, which all good. God bless. They deserve it. But it's a very different game. The challenge is they're, they're, the people that ultimately pay for it 
the peers, employers, and so forth have so much leverage that it's being paid through subsidies and so forth. So we'll see how right. how this all plays out. But yes, it's a great market to be at a CRNA. Yeah, I remember, and and I'll let Sharon get a word in edgewise. A word in edgewise. I knew it was going to be like this. It's but okay. you know, we interviewed you know Randy Moore a few years back, and you know we we kind of had the same type of discussion with Randy. And Randy's a smart guy, and. You know, I kind of ask him the same question, and and one of the things he said is something that you know I've realized over the past few years, especially you know, my wife is a CRNA as well, and she does 1099 locums. So, I mean, obviously the pay for them has gone up dramatically, um, but I think we've got to be real careful in the CRNA mm-hmm. community. To your point, when when pay is commensurate with you know what MDs are making or close. Then you know one of the one of the positives for CRNAs is that they've been the, the lowest cost provider out there, um, and when we with the highest quality with the highest quality or, or the same quality, let's put yes, it that way. Exactly. Um, you know, um, you know, I think that's where the issue can start to break down a little bit, especially as as I'm sure you're going to talk about. You know, with healthcare costs being, you know, even even more political than it used to be when we're running about 20% of our GDP for healthcare. The government has taken notice of this. <laughs> and actually, you know, I think the government is the is the biggest payer of healthcare costs in the country now or pretty close. So, you know, I think that's one of the things we've got to be really cognizant of in this environment as well because salaries can't continue to go up to your point because, you know, somebody's subsidizing that and eventually we all know that those subsidies go either somewhere else or they get cut off or, or dropped back to a certain point. So, Sure. So Medicare Medicaid's the largest payer in the country combined. Combined Medicare Medicaid's the largest payer in the country. But then commercial insurance still 40 to 50% of the dollar throughout the country in different places, different markets, different specialties, and so on and so on. But yes, between Medicare and Medicaid, they, that is the combined, the government's the largest payer. In terms of the biggest challenge, again, CRNAs are often a substitute for medical doctor anesthesiologist so that the pay gap should close because they're often just substitutes for each other, at least in a lot of different situations. So the pay gap, that pay gap, that cost should close because you're doing the same thing at the end of the day. You know, and again, the, the medical doctor anesthesia, there might be some training where for certain types of complex cases, you right. really do need a medical doctor anesthesiologist versus a CRNA. Absolutely. And, and certainly the, the doctors have gone to school and residence for a lot longer than the CRNAs. But it doesn't matter. If at the end of the day, what they're doing is a substitute for what's what's needed. The pricing should get closer and closer, and salary should get closer and closer. The I guess the greater challenge is in any area where the costs become either there's two things that drive automation. Costs become so high that you, that it forces innovation towards automatic type solutions. Right. You know, we see this in some hospitals now where they're able to replace some of the staff on floors. There's, there's a, the first beta testing of using robotics to replace staff on floors to do things that people were doing. And just right. purely by necessity, purely just either they can't hire them or the cost has become so insane that they have to use robotics instead. And you see this with revenue cycle, for example. And, and again, anesthesia, again, me, like many, many specialties, this great mix of art and science. So, right. so at what point can you dispense more automatically with less need for doctors and CRNAs and so forth. And that's a that's a longer term automation issue and challenge that comes though on the cusp of just either not enough CRNAs and MD anesthesias or the cost becoming so high that people look for different ways to deliver anesthesia. And again, anesthesia like most most of medicine is a mix of art and science, so not totally prone to automation. Certainly with robotics and surgery, more and more robots used but they're not replacing surgeons at all. It's just a tool for surgeons to use. You know, so, so that's not a replacement at all. That's just a tool to be used by surgeons. In other areas, uh, reading of images. You know, more and more belief that AI and reading of images will cut down the need for as many radiologists and, and as many people to read images. Uh, anesthesia is somewhere between, in between because at some point does the human cost of this belie be such a high price that you end up seeing trends towards automation, and that's still some some distance away. You know, we there was a machine, an anesthesia ma- machine that was developed called the Sedasis to use during GI procedures, and it fell by the wayside because uh, of at this point it seems that anesthesia is pretty difficult 
to um, automate at this point. Um, whenever I was AANA president, that it was kind of a big deal. And I went and I visited the factory and um, all of that. That's a whole other conversation. But I guess listening to all of this, my question to you would be, are there opportunities that we as CRNAs are missing right now that we need to be thinking about? No, that's, that's a great question. And, and I know it's on the automation side. I think what happens with all these things on automation, there's there's a point at which there's sort of a Venn diagram where costs get so high and the technology catches up to where these things start to make sense. And they've not quite caught up to that spot, but that's what you ultimately see in different parts of the economic situation where the cost goes so high and the technology gets better to where it becomes a better solution. But your point is well taken. You looked at it firsthand, and at this point in time, it wasn't a viable solution. And it's sort of fascinating. Are there opportunities for CRNAs? I think there's what, what the beauty of being a CRNA today or being a PA today or being a physician today is there are so many opportunities. And it's really a matter of the same advice that I give to my children. I give to younger people that mentor is it's ultimately figuring out what do you want to do with your career? You're at to, to go to Jay's point. You're at an absolutely beautiful time in the business, in your career. Beautiful time. Yes, it's very hard work. So I don't want to I don't want to understate that very hard work. But you're at this wonderful time where there are job options for anybody that comes out with a CRNA degree that ha- you know that that is a that it, that you know doesn't have some kind of ridiculous reason why they wouldn't be hired. There's just a lot of jobs out there, and so you, you've got this wonderful time. And then the most important thing that I see towards long-term career happiness. And remember, I started off as a young lawyer, and there's probably very few professions where the young people are less happy than in the law profession it's we spent we working at the mega firms it's almost like being a young resident or yes. young investment banker young this young that the financial rewards are, are great but the but the the you know the, the hours are are insane yeah. and you feel like a cog in the wheel and what what we ultimately came to the conclusion that the happiest lawyers were those that ended up deciding this is what i want to do with my profession and, and I think it's largely true of most people in most professions. I mean, for example, uh, Jay's in the financial wealth advisory business. You're in the CRNA business. At the end of the day, you've also been able to carve out a way of doing life, a way of doing business that it seems to me you both love. That, that for example, and neither of you follow the traditional path. Jay was a financial advisor who ended up in a niche practice, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, you're a CRNA that both has been president of the association, does locums work, has lots of freedom, is drinking mimosas today. I mean, this is you've carved out a but, – but, but, but you've built a life and a career that doesn't fit somebody else's exact notion of what it should look like, but it fits what you two think your career should look like. You run a podcast that's got a million downloads. I mean, you've, you've done things that you want to do. And it's really the same advice for a young CRNA or, or a mid-level or an older CRNA. The beauty is you've got job security. Right. So now that you've filled that part of Maslow's hierarchy, you're going to get fed. You're, you could support your family. Now, what else do I want to do? What's interesting to me? Do I want to be a leader? Do I want to be a leader? Do I want to be part of a business? Do I want to host a podcast? Do I want to write? Do I just want to have a job? You know, and, and, I, and I, tell, you know, I, I tell people there's nothing wrong with deciding. I just want to have a job. I just right. want to make a living. Yep. I want to do my shifts, and I want the freedom to live life I want to live it. That's fine. Or you could choose I want to have a job. But no, I really want to have a profession and be a leader. And that's true, too. I want to be the best CRNA in this area. I want to run the program for a major medical institution. And it, it, any of those work. The key to me is that you've decided what you want to do. And, and so, well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I've no. So that, to, to, your, to your point on that, I don't, I don't know. What, but I've seen many CRNAs. You know, the, the first CRNA I really came in contact with very closely uh, was a CRNA who was a partner in a surgery center in Ohio that I was advising. And this was 30 years ago. And this was new to me. You know, the, the fact that the CRNA had been so involved in everything. It was a place where they couldn't get anesthesiologists. And this person had become a real leader within their, within their situation. It was, it was fascinating to watch. It was, I mean, it was great. But, but there's so many different things you could do as a CRNA, just like some of you could do as a financial advisor right. or a lawyer and so forth. But it's deciding what do you want to do with it? 
As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. I've got some thoughts on what I think would help our current situation. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, you know, from somebody who is outside, somewhat outside as yourself looking into our community. Yes, we have gotten better between the acrimony between our organization and the anesthesiologist organization, somewhat better. On the other hand, it, there's still a lot of acrimony and it still comes down to, hey, I'm the doctor, you're the nurse kind of thing. One way that I think could really save the healthcare system, and I've told many, I, I do a lot of advocacy work, lobbying, et cetera, and I'll talk to the hospital systems, there's low-hanging fruit out there that they're just not taking advantage of. And instead of mandating, okay, for reimbursement, they have to have four rooms to one anesthesiologist, you know, that's a reimbursement model through Medicare. But if we would actually base our work and come up with models based on acuity, if I'm working in endoscopy and I've got class one, class two people, and I'm doing 20 cases, I don't need somebody there to be my second, um, basically, that you're paying for them to quote unquote supervise me, right? What if they base things on the acuity level and what the real needs are of the patient? And to me, if we would look closely at our models and do not feel like, okay, you got to have one to four. I mean, there's no reason. I, I've worked 16 years in the office anesthesia without an anesthesiologist, okay? But all of a sudden in a hospital situation, You've got to have these mandated models. And to me, that's low-hanging fruit for these hospital systems. And I don't know what we're missing, why we can't, well, I do know the answer to that, why we don't get more pickup. Yes, my, <laughs> Jeremy's doing his fingers. It, it's money. And part of it's culture. Yeah. Part, of, part of it's culture. You know, it's still, you're, you're, you're just a nurse. And he's a doctor. And, you know, there's still that gender piece in it, too. Um, I can be with a CRNA walking down the hall, a male CRNA, and somebody will go, hey, doc. Hey, Sharon. Well, in reality, I'm the one who has the doctorate, but um, there's the gender piece. But that, that I think we're missing I think hospital systems are missing a huge boat. I know Atrium in Charlotte did change their models up to better reflect acuity level of patients, and they've saved millions of dollars. But somehow that information doesn't get make the headlines so much, you know? Yeah, no, Sharon, Jeremy, I think it's a fascinating point. I think the thing that happens is you are well aware is there's a lot of things that don't make sense, and they generally don't get changed until there's a true necessity until, until, right. until someone someone in power sees a true necessity so for example you've had this this real back and forth dialogue you've got some states in the country trying to constantly increase the nurse to patient ratio so you need more nurses per patient and of course that all sounds good from a patient safety perspective or a very generic like no surprise that sounds good from a very generic patient advocacy, patient safety perspective, but we know that it really isn't the most impactful thing at all. It just is something that politicians can point to. See what we did in California 
we, we required hospitals to have more nurses per patient per floor and that you put hospitals in an impossible situation. Yeah. But to go to your point, in states where you don't have that regulatory climate, what you ultimately end up with is hospitals where you end up in a much better position regulatory-wise, it's not so much where the CRNAs and the anesthesiologists are on the same page. It's where the CRNAs, the anesthesiologists, and the hospitals are on the same page. That's where you end up being able to make some of these changes. Because then you've got, I mean, the hospitals are still very powerful legislatively and politically. The payers are incredibly powerful. And the payers, unfortunately, are off on the other side of these discussions and disputes. Mm-hmm. But, but the payers might not be on this issue. But, but what you do have is hospitals and health systems, very powerful in Washington, very powerful in states. When you talk to any representative, the first thing they'll ask you about almost any healthcare policy change is, how does this impact the local hospital in my town? And, and again, they're not wrong to ask that question. It, often the case is that local hospitals, the biggest employer in their local town. So, so asking that question is a relevant question, but but what happens is hospitals and health systems by necessity say, do we really, really need 10 CRNAs here or 15 doctors here, 15 MDs here, when in fact this could be done by five or six? It's when you have that and the hospitals are paying the subsidies for those 15 to 20, that's where you have the motivation to make these changes you're talking about. because. Yeah, no, that's I, sort of my perspective on it. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with that. I want to, I want to kind of because you mentioned something there, and uh, you know, what Scott, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, we're we're seeing rural hospitals close, you know, at a pretty good clip, or they're getting bought up by larger organizations. I mean, can the rural hospitals survive in this environment, or what's going to happen there? Yeah, so I think. Rural hospitals that thrive will largely be doing what they are great at, and they'll probably have limited, unless they're of a larger size, sort of a broader rural community, they'll probably be pretty limited in what they provide. They'll have to provide those things that are absolutely very primary care driven. And also what you hear is things that are very time sensitive. So stroke programs. Local rural hospitals still have to have stroke programs. So the kind of thing that if patients taken care of within a couple hours, good results. If they're taken care of within ten hours, horrible results. Right. So you do have certain things like that, but you'll you'll very much will have this dialing back to what absolutely has to be done locally, what doesn't. You know, and we we were sort of during the pandemic, there were very few hospital closures, but that was because there were great economics being being provided by the government. Yes, that dried up. We're on the cusp again of seeing the potential for lots of small hospital closures. And, and you used to have, again, like you said, you used to have large systems that would buy these up as a hub and spoke model. Friggin' they'll buy up the small hospital, have it send cases, bigger cases, more important tertiary cases to the regional hospital, the regional hub. But more and more, those large health systems are have to be so careful in expenditures today that they don't necessarily want to take on that rural hospital. So we'll, we'll have to find a way. I mean, we're going to end up in a situation as the profit centers of a lot of hospitals and health systems get gutted, we'll see ourselves as a nation having to find ways to support the hospitals and health systems in a more specific way. All right. I, I get your Becker's Hospital Review newsletter every day. And for instance, one of the headlines was hospital losses. Providence lost $1.1 billion in 2022. You know, I've never quite understood this. If any other business lost $1.1 billion, they wouldn't be able to keep their doors open. And I worked with a legislator for a long time, and he always told me that hospitals do fuzzy math. And you're a CPA, you're in you're in you're in a in a space that should know. The way he explained it to me is hospitals will say, "I build." Um, Five hundred thousand. Uh, they'll just take the number five hundred thousand dollars for a heart heart surgery. I'm just throwing numbers out there. They really only get three hundred thousand dollars. So they say that they lost two hundred thousand dollars, which they never had in their hands anyway. So yeah, that's that, a, that's a very different thing than what's being reported here. What what he's talking about is it, it'd be like you as a CRNA billing out X amount per RVU, per unit, whatever it is, and getting paid a fraction of that and saying that the, that the difference was charity care. You, you follow me? Oh, yes. So hospitals, yeah. hospitals have always said, you know, and, and they've always reported their charity care, at least often in what I would call fuzzy math. And that's okay. very different 
than what you're talking about here. What you're talking about this year is, you know, Kaiser lost a billion three last quarter. Cleveland couldn't cost a billion. Providence lost a billion one this quarter. What you're looking at here is true losses, true economic losses. Revenues this amount, expenses this amount, and, and, and expenses just out, you know, being larger than revenues. And they could sustain that for some period of time. But what you're seeing is another report that we saw was cash on hand at the major systems is actually falling. And that reflects the fact that you've got true losses. Just like running a CRNA practice, all of a sudden we're sitting on 200000 yeah. We've had a bad quarter. Now we're sitting on 160000 We're still okay. We've still got in the hospital system perspective a balance sheet you know, or the ability to borrow. But at some point those numbers catch up. I mean, and, and you sort of see, you see right now, we've had two major hospital closures in the last uh, year, this Atlanta Medical Center in Atlanta. Uh, you've also got a hospital center closing in Pennsylvania. And what you're seeing is that is causing the overwhelming of the other local systems around them. Right. So, I mean, th- those are systems, real losses, real closures, you know, and nobody to backstop them. And it's all, you know, some would argue, well, that's okay in the in the spirit of getting to a more efficient system. But what's really happened is the, the people that are taking over the care of those are overwhelmed as it is. And, and so it, at some point, you've got multiple different things that have to happen. Yes, hospitals, hospitals has probably got to get X, X amount more efficient. But why? They've had, and we've all had the world changed around them. You're, you're in the CRNA business. If I talk to many nurses today, they will say, I want to work any place but in an inpatient hospital. You follow me? Well, a lot of nurses will say that. And, yeah. and again, everybody's perspective is all over the place, but there's been a huge vacuum of nurses out of the health system for multiple reasons. They want to work in other parts of healthcare. The job market has been so great outside of healthcare. They want to take the chance working outside of healthcare, and we're not producing nurses fast enough. And as we do produce nurses, those nurses don't want to stay in the business for that long. So you've got a number of different challenges going on that are very macro changes in the remote work environment. This is not a fault of, you know, the hospital systems are largely huge not-for-profits. They, nor most other people, were able to anticipate the huge wage inflation and the huge movement of jobs away from hospital health systems or just the shortage of workers and, right. and employees. So it's, it's a real Real, real challenging situation. But I don't think these are artificial lawyer losses. This is not the fuzzy math that goes into charitable. Here's how much charity care we did. I think these are real, real losses that are that are <clears> devastating. <throat> and I think hospital health systems, you got to have to figure it out or, or get help from the government. What you're seeing now is hospital health systems laying off anybody who's not clinic facing or anybody that's not in IT. So you've got lots of layoffs going on again across systems of mid management. And you, you know, you you could say, well, they shouldn't have hired that much mid management. Well, the last few years, they needed all that. And right. so, so I'm, I'm not sure where, what, I'm not sure what the right answer is, but I think it's, it's easy and convenient to play in the health systems, but they're playing a difficult game. Well, you know, the Fed likes to see those layoffs these days, Scott. So, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that'll ease off on some of these rate increases and you know, we can get some <laughs> clarification in the markets a little bit. But I'll digress about that for a minute. But, you know, as we talk about more of the, the macro level here, if, if we kind of look more long term and the vision the next 10, 20, even 30 years, I mean, uh, Scott, you and I both know, and, and Sharon as well, that you, you cannot continue to run at the pace we're at. I mean, you can't lose a billion dollars here and a billion dollars there. It just doesn't work long term. So, you know, we've got some options. I mean, you know, we hear about the, the public option here. You know, what's going to happen, you know, is the government's going to take over, going to be in a one-payer system. Um, you know, you still got kind of the, the free enterprise, free market, private option out there, and then, you know, Medicare care for all. Uh, so we've got these options, you know, what, what does this look like in the future? What are your thoughts around that? So, so this is a great question. I think if you would have asked most people a year, five years ago, 10 years ago, they would have said any concept of a public option, Medicare for all was anathema and don't even start, get us started on it. You know, you, you, you hear every political season has become big, big issues. Yeah. The challenge that you have is you're already at a spot where more than 50% of healthcare is paid for by Medicare or Medicaid. And so the most ridiculous campaign slogans a few years ago were get the government out of my Medicare, because obviously Medicare is a government program. So just, these are campaign yeah. slogans <laughs> and posters that made no sense. Well, they are the politicians, is, Scott, so we expect Yeah, They are politicians. But, but the flip side is only 15% of pay is through Medicare. 
So only about 15% of care is through Medicare, about 35% or more is through Medicaid. So when people try and do Medicare for all, this would be a huge change to our system to really change it to Medicare for all. What's happened is the big payers are now making so much of their money running the Medicare Advantage and the other programs. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so what's happened is you've now bastardized Medicare in the name of sort of we're going to get um, cost certainty or we're going to get a capitated environment and stuff like that. And what's really happened is we've now added – you've got the commercial payers on one hand, and now you've added a middleman to most of the Medicaid plans and the Medicare plans – and the big commercial payers are filling that role as well. Hmm. So, so the, the sort of the, the demise of it all, the, the demise of truly a multi-payer system would be a situation where the four big payers end up really both being the commercial payers for 40, 50 percent of the population and then capitating or, doing, or running Medicare Advantage programs for everything else. I mean, and you're not you're, you're still a distance from that, but it's not that far. And then at some right. point, somebody says. If we're really moving towards this capitated system where everything's sort of jammed through these four payers, why do we need those four payers? Right. Why don't we just move towards the government running the whole thing? And who knows where this turns out? You know, we, we had a panelist last week whose system is 81% Medicare and Medicaid. You know, in the old days for a health system, this was a disaster. Right. This was the last thing you wanted. Now that health system felt like they were doing okay, you know, that they were doing okay. They're in a state where Medicaid pays well. So they, they were good, not not great, but good. So they felt like that was easier than dealing with the 90% that's commercial. Now, if you remember, we all remember 10 years ago, 40% of your business was governmental, and the other 60% was commercial, and that other 60% subsidized the 40%. Right. Now, as those big payers have more and more power, that is less the perception that those big payers are subsidizing the rest of their business more that those big payers are very challenging. So I don't know where you go. You know, when people say it's just a free market game, well, it's not. Because we're already 50% plus Medicare, Medicaid, and, and the government subsidizes residencies, all kinds of other things. So we're, we're never going to be a true, quote, unquote, free market. When somebody say, says Medicare for all, well, it's not that either, because it's only 14, 50% of the business is Medicare. You know, right. different states try to adopt, quote, unquote, a public option. So I think the state of Washington tried to adopt a public option. Massachusetts might have a public option, one of the other northeastern states. And those have been economically a disaster for those states because they're dealing with the same supply-demand problems that we're all dealing with. Yeah, They just can't get enough hospitals, pay, doctors, everything else to make those public options work and anywhere near a good price. Uh, you, you also have uh, – but you have a lot of those challenges. I mean, you've got real – you know, California tried to put a market cap legislatively and how much a hospital could charge and and that's fine but then you have to cap what the costs of work and everything else because they can't they just can't make it work i mean it's right. it's a, the covering hospital association thinks it's a, and it's it's well-meaning or at least politically well-meaning they think there's a, a a reason behind it but it's often really poorly thought out or just playing to a political constituency with no real sense to it what did you think about them trying to cap nursing pay I mean, the nurses lost their mind, and and and, <laughs> and 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 rightly so. They've never kept CEO pay, physician pay, but yet they were going to try. Uh, they tried to cap traveling <sighs> nurses' pay. Yeah, no, it's obviously ludicrous. I mean, we're we're in a free society. If a nurse can, can work for someplace else, for someplace else, and, and be able to take care of their family for several years and, and be able to make a living, this is what it is. And this is sort of like a supply and demand issue. At the end of the day, we've got it. In the old days. We created enough nurses, we imported enough nurses, and those nurses, like, the job was attractive enough that it was a, that it was a great living for a nurse. I mean, it, it, a good living. And so we've got to import more nurses. We've got to create more nurses. We, we've got the medical education system in our country creates great doctors and nurses, but it creates them in a way that was built before the Internet. So listen to that. We built the medical education system before the Internet was developed. So what happens is you've got this apprenticeship situation for doctors where you go to med school for four years, then you go to residency for four years, then you do a fellowship. So you're not done to 31 or 32. And the idea that you're going to memorize so many things, well, you don't have to, you have to be a great learner today to be a great doctor. You have to be a great learner today to be a great nurse, but you're not going to learn everything in those first five years because everything changes anyways over time. Right. So you have to be able to learn and get yeah. better. It's it just, it's, it's, we've got an education system that's very, very outdated. And so we produce in India, people are produced as doctors are out practicing by 26, 27. Here it's 31, 32. 
Yeah. You know, in, in some states, they've got expedited accelerated nursing programs where, where you're done and in and out quicker. The cost benefit to get into the profession is, is much, much better. And, we, and we've yeah. got to get to that spot. I mean, you know, the countries where they've not kept up the supply and demand of doctors, nurses, staff, it all sounds good on paper, but in the long run, it's a total disaster. So, so yeah. we need, at the end of the day, enough nurses, doctors, staff to take care of people. We just need it. I mean, you've seen countries where they don't do it where they're just, the numbers are out of whack. I mean, there's India and China, are countries with a billion plus people. They don't have enough doctors and nurses. Whenever there's a disaster, it's a disaster. Right. We don't want to be in that spot. And those are great countries. I don't mean that as negative. India does a better job of turning out doctors than almost anybody in the, country, in the world. There's just a billion four people in India. And we, and we are fortunate in our country to be the beneficiary of so many of their immigrants. Yeah. And, we, and we need more of them. But the system, the idea that they'll be able to solve the problem through prevention is a politician slogan that is a, a move in the right direction that might make a dent but at the end of the day we need enough care providers to make this work we have 330 million people in aging population we need to be in a spot where there's enough caregivers enough hospitals enough providers enough nurses enough doctors enough crnas everything and we've got an education system that's massively outdated today's show is brought to you by the folks at crna financial planning an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. I want to kind of wrap us up a little bit here, but I also wanted to, to hit on private equity. I know you've, you've got some, some background there. So, you know, not only in the nurse anesthesia arena are we seeing private equity involved, but, I mean, we're seeing it all throughout healthcare. And let's talk about that for a minute because if they're – if these costs are exceeding, you know, what's going on, why in the world is private equity getting involved? Right. So it's happened. It's a great, it's a great question. You've got private equity has been involved in sort of healthcare in different ways forever. Uh, and in private equity, it's fascinating. Cause there's, there's different kinds of private equity. There's private equity that we used to call healthcare light, which is all the business services behind healthcare. So it'd be a private equity fund investing in say a revenue cycle company, a technology company, something that provides services to hospitals, to practices, to everybody else. Right. That's what we used to call sort of private equity healthcare light. Private equity healthcare is actually rolling up, you know, putting together groups of physicians, groups of doctors, they're owning hospitals, owning providers, owning all those kinds of things. So you got those two different parts of the business. Then you've got a completely different part, which is private equity slash venture capital investing in what we call biotech, you know, new drugs new therapies, new things. Nets, let's take it as a totally different realm of, of the world and not as directly applicable day-to-day, but long-term can come up with real solutions. Like you look at uh, multi-cancer early detection being done through blood tests. That would be biotech versus provider healthcare or provider light healthcare. Right. Provider healthcare, which if you, we've gone through different cycles of this. You and I, Jeremy, are old enough to remember a period of time when the practice management companies that were put together private private equity funds, mm-hmm. this goes back 20 years ago, all sort of blew up because economic yep. models blew up when things got tough. Yep. You know, uh, enough debt on all these things and margins got tighter. And so what, what you see now is you had lots of different roll-ups. It's almost like the Roaring Twenties. Everything goes well during the Roaring Twenties as long as you could exit before the plane, before the, the party, the dancing stops. Exactly. And so you've seen a, you've seen a lot of that. And, and what happens now is you've got now practices selling into these practice platforms that are all of a sudden very anxious or interested in selling in that weren't a couple of years ago. And it goes back to what you said about interest rates and inflation and stuff like that. You've got physicians in their 50s. They've seen their portfolios take a, take a big beating this year. You know, the NASDAQ down 25 26% or so. The SP down 16 18%, depending what day it is. Yep. Portfolios go down. At a time when the margins in their practices have also gone down, because right. the practices essentially, just like hospitals, like many hospitals, many versus hospitals, the practices see the revenue sort of flat and their costs of staff and supplies, everything else going up, so their margins are down. So you got two big hits to practices. 
private equity is not immune to that. I mean, private equity is right. not immune to that. They're, they're in the same spot trying to roll these things up. You know, you see private equity funds. Private equity funds build their businesses on two things, just like any business, organic growth and then acquisition growth. Mm-hmm. And what we see as a debacle is when organic growth is going in the wrong direction. Mars is going in the wrong direction, and they're trying to acquire their way out of this. They're right. trying to acquire growth to sort of build beyond all that and then essentially sell to the next person. Right. But no, I think the private equity healthcare has been, it's been a big, big win for private equity healthcare over the last decade or two. And it's coming into a challenging time like all of healthcare. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and with rates going up, I mean, we're seeing, you know, multiples going down and, um, I mean, it's an interesting time all over the place. You, you know, I mean, we haven't seen the, these type of rate increases in a very long time. And, you know, obviously that has a big effect on a lot of different pieces and private equity is one of those. I mean, you know, any, anytime you can get free money and lever free money and ratchet it up, that's what you want to do. And, and now money's starting to cost something. And, uh, you know, you're seeing less and less deals out there. Well, no, Jeremy, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, all of a sudden you have something that was, you know, Five six percent interest on debt payments on secondary debt, right? six seven percent. Now it's nine ten percent. Yeah, you know four percent on a hundred million bucks ends up being four million dollars a year. It's real money in terms of margins and so forth. Yeah, you know that you got to sort of play through to make sure you make a profitable business, whatever the numbers are. But it, but it, you're adding you know four hundred basis points in the last year to the Fed funds rate. Yeah. Has a big impact across these across all these areas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we kind of round this up um, do we have Scott, to stop I mean, I have, do we really have to stop i mean i'm having such i know a i know i know, you know? we could go on forever <laughs> but you know disruption is the word of the day so can you tell me what bold moves do you think that crnas or our association should take at this point to position ourselves as healthcare leaders and what we can do for our profession for the future? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And quite frankly, I'm sure Sharon and Jeremy, you've got better answers to it than I do. You know, I I think what's got to be fixed is, you know, the supply demand like imbalance of what we have in terms of nurses, doctors, staff, techs, et cetera, versus our aging growing population. is just a looming disaster. And Washington would like you to think it'll be solved through preventive medicine and population health. But we all know, I just don't believe that's the case. I think that leaves us upside down whenever we, just upside down day to day. You know, the thing I'll tell you is people talk about coverage and access. We're down to a spot in our country, and I'll get to an answer to your question, Sharon, I promise, and Jeremy. We're, we're, we're at a spot now where more Americans as a percentage have coverage than we've ever had in our country ever. So we're at 92% or so are covered. You know, yes, we should be at 100%. Whether you're yeah. right or left, whatever perspective, we should all be covered. But coverage without access is sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's very superficial. So <laughs> yes. we, we, have, we have better coverage than we've ever had. I think all of us would, would, be, would agree that our access is no better because right. there's just not enough doctors and nurses. Worse. Yeah. So, so if somebody wants to figure this out, like they talk about the nursing shortage is often a function of not enough faculty to teach nursing. Is one of the things you say that you hear often is this is the stopgap, this is the limiting step. There's not enough faculty to teach nursing, and and if that's the case, we just have to update how education is done in our country. Because so I view it as at some point we'll automate a lot more. But we always talk about recruit, retain, and automate. Recruit and retain people and automate what you can. At some point we'll automate some of this out of the equation but not for a very long time and maybe not effectively ever. Who knows? But in the meantime, the next 10, 20, 30 years, we better figure out how to create a lot more providers. You know, it's not that we need to totally flood the zone, but we need enough providers for to take care of our people. So if you could figure out a way to educate people quicker, more efficiently, better, produce more CRNAs, it would solve a lot of problems, particularly you're in a situation where most professionals today in the old days, you know, if you're, if you're my age, you know, I've been in the same job for 30 years. People don't do that anymore. You know, yeah. people don't do that anymore. Yeah. It's just not how the world works anymore. And yeah. so you're in a spot where, you know, you produce doctors, you produce nurses, you know, half of us end up sort of partly out of it or partly doing it part time at a certain period of time. I don't yeah. bill hours like I used to, yeah. but, but somebody's got to bill those hours. Maybe they don't, but but the idea is the same. <laughs> the firm wants somebody to bill those hours, whether you're doing it or not. The firm wants it. They sure do. <laughs> well, but, no, before, uh, you know, the other thing that I think 
needs to be considered outside of the faculty. I agree with you at one point, but 80% of nurses now would not go back into nursing. They would not advise their offspring to go into nursing. That's a problem. I mean, we might wind up having all the faculty in the world, but uh, the pandemic has absolutely killed the nursing workforce. They've worn them out. Yes, 100%. And they're leaving in droves. Yes, and and you, yeah, 100%. The the stats are something like 800,000, a million nurses have left in the last few years out of 5 million. That's 20% of the workforce has left. And that 20% remaining does not want to work largely. Not, I mean, not, not all, not completely. doesn't work on hospitals and health systems. It works on altern- all sort of alternative sites. And so what happens is, how do you create enough nurses? And then how do you move it towards much, much more uh, where it doesn't have to be 60 hours a week, where people could work the shift they want to work, make a living, have the flexibility they want. Like people talked about during the pandemic, they talked about all these nice things you do for people. Oh, we're going to get them a massage. We're going to have them do deep breathing and have them do meditation. <laughs> Let me tell you, when my first job, I was working 80 hours a week. Somebody could have done all those things for me. It would have been irrelevant. It, it, it didn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. I mean, you could do you could do everything you want, but if I'm working that hard and going to a field of combat where I got to worry about my own health and sickness, you could do all these cute little things you want, but yeah. unless you're making sure there's enough people so I can get a break, so I can take the day off, things they need to do, you're going to burn people out. I mean, well, you, you, you go around is, it. This is as much a cultural thing as it is anything. You know, I look at this and I go, you know, I mean, these, the, the millennial group, they don't believe in work the way, I mean, we're all similar age here. I mean, they don't believe in working the way we did. They don't believe in working 80 hours a week and busting your butt to get there. That's not the culture that they've been brought up in, ingrained in. It, it's a different feel nowadays. So somebody so has to figure that out as well. Well, no, but you're absolutely right. But if you and I know that at the end of the day, it's much easier as an employer to have one person doing 60 hours than three people doing 20. Because now i got to manage three people doing 20. Exactly. But as an employer, you don't have that choice anymore. You don't have that choice anymore. So you better figure out how to like, yes. then you need enough people that want to each do the 20 hours a week so that you could make this all work. Right. And, and, but it's, it's really, it's not, it's not, you know, you see more and more solutions around this, but you need enough if you're going to have people not working I'd rather have full-time employees. It makes my life easier within right. reason. Within reason. Within I, want reason yeah. <laughs> I want people fully engaged in what they're doing. But if that's not the workforce, then i got to figure out around it. But forcing somebody who wants to do 20 hours a week to do 40 hours a week is a very short-term solution because that person won't stay. Absolutely. And that's what's happening, I believe. I really do. 100%. I think that these folks don't want to do sharing what you had to do and what Scott had to do at the law firm and what I had to do when I started the business. That is not in their makeup anymore. You know, it's just not. And that's another whole issue that, you know, we could probably have another whole podcast about. But. Well, there's still another issue. And I swear I'm going to stop after this. <laughs> I'm going to have to put a fire hose on you because. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what this, what I'm going to say, Jeremy, is we know that nursing workforce is the backbone of our healthcare system. And yet, whenever we're trying to search for solutions, nurses are not at the table. Yeah. They're, they're just not. Now, I'm sure Becker's Healthcare has a lot of nurses up and down in your, within your conglomerate, I'm sure, because you would have them there, the people who are the backbone. What you have is a few of the great CEOs in the country, Jenny Spiso, the CEO of UCLA, uh, Nancy Agee, the CEO of Carillion Clinic. I mean, there's a number of the great CEOs in the country are nurses. And more and more, you see nurses, doctors, CEOs. It's very, very critical to our system, that perspective, that compassion, intelligence, discipline. I mean, they make for great leaders. And this goes yeah. back to our early conversation. If you want to be a CRNA and figure out what you want to do, the sky's the limit. Do whatever you want. You've got a great platform, but you have to figure out what you want to do. Sharon and Jeremy, I know we've got to wrap up. I, I, I know that... Uh, I'm at the spot where I know I've got to drop off in a second or I'm going to get shot here uh, or in trouble here. Maybe not shot, it's a bad word, but I'm going to be in big trouble. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, let, let's wrap there. You know, Scott, I know we could go on with you forever, and we really appreciate your time. It's been uh, engaging, and, you know, I've really enjoyed it. I, and I can tell from the, the way Sharon's asking questions that she is, too. So thank you. Thank you for all you do for, for the healthcare industry and what you've accomplished. Uh, much to be proud of, and we thank you for being on our show. Thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure. All right. Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and 
Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help our show grow? Well, the best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, and but make it positive. We know there's way too much negativity in this world. Absolutely. Share us on social media. Tell your friends we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country, and we'd like to be number... We'd like to be number one. Well, you know, we got to let Scott be in there, too. So we, we'll be behind yeah, him. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. No, no, yeah, we'll be behind you guys. are fantastic. Thank <laughs> at you least in the so top much. 10. All right. Until All next right. time. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out BeyondTheMaskPodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.